Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The seven years war. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails remastered look at the Franco-Prussian War, which was originally aired as one episode on the 22nd of May, 2012. Hello and welcome to the podcast, and our first episode of When Diplomacy Fails remastered. I hope you enjoy this blast from the past as much as I enjoyed building it up after many years away from the era and the man we all know and love. When I began this podcast, I had little real idea where it was going to go. This is, I think, attested to by the strange formula I follow for the first two podcasts of 1 to 19 before I find my feet, as some listeners put it, and stick to the formula we're more used to. This remastered series was designed to coincide with the 5th anniversary of this episode's original release, so I think it's only fitting that we start at such an important war. If I did everything over and could start When Diplomacy Fells from the beginning as if it never existed before, I would still start with the Franco-Prussian War as my first episode, 
and that's because the Franco-Prussian War prepares us for the rest of the 19th century, and leads almost unstoppably into the First World War, as we'll discover. It's probably one of the most handy cut-off points for this era into the next. So yeah, I'm all ready to start with it. If you've been with us since the beginning, this may be even somewhat nostalgic for you guys, as you may recall the nervous 20-year-old and limply educated student attempting to make awful jokes and references to Carlsberg, what was I thinking, as we traversed the 19th century. Yet somehow you stuck with me, and now five years later, we have this great chance to revisit this story and unpack it once again. So thanks for sticking around, and not giving up. I believe you could hear the nerves in my voice in episode one, half a decade ago. Now I'm only excited. I'm excited to begin again, and I'm excited to give back to you guys, and I'm excited to kick things off with this remaster. So let's have at it. I will now take you to the latter half of the 19th century. People never lie so much as after a hunt, during a war, or before an election. Otto von Bismarck. The Kingdom of Prussia had had a rich military history by the time Otto von Bismarck took over as minister-president in 1862. Prussia was a country moulded by war. Wars over the years had seen it grow from a small electorate on the outskirts of the Holy Roman Empire into a regional superpower. Its past leaders, which included men like Frederick William the Great Elector and his grandson Frederick the Great, understood the importance of an opportunistic, militaristic and realistic foreign policy. It enabled them as Prussia's rulers to chip away at their neighbours, so that by 1862, Prussia had swallowed up parts of Bohemia, Poland and smaller German principalities on its old borders to claim the position of supreme amongst the other German states. Only Austria could challenge this claim, a fact which suggested conflict in the near future. European geography more than anything else demanded that Prussia be both effectively militarily and financially organised to make up for its relatively small size, at least in comparison with France to the west, Austria to the south or Russia to the east. Surrounding Prussia then on its more immediate borders were smaller German states, some practically tiny, some as large as Bavaria, the third largest German state in Europe. These tiny principalities and municipalities were often governed by their own German monarch and were fiercely independent. They were loosely organised, for the purpose of convenient diplomacy and ease of trade, into the German Confederation. The rare times when German states unified were often during times of war, such as the Napoleonic Wars earlier in the century, where you would have seen the Confederation of the Rhine and the Kingdom of Westphalia, among others. It was during these wars at the beginning of the 19th century that the Holy Roman Empire, for so long the unit which held Germany in its grip, was dismantled, and decentralisation seemed destined to escalate because of this. Like so many European states at the time, Prussia was completely outclassed by Napoleon's France and tried in vain to halt French dominance over the continent. From that conflict, Prussia emerged as a European power moulded by its wartime experiences. Losses to Napoleonic France had been heavy and humiliating, so military reform of sorts was needed to reverse the trend and get Prussia's reputation back on track in Europe. For much time after the Napoleonic Wars, 
Prussia, Austria and Russia grouped themselves into the Holy Alliance, designed to prevent the kind of revolutions seen under Napoleon from ever happening again. For a time, this joint strategy proved effective, but in 1848 a sweeping trend of European revolts upset the balance of power and cast old ideas and assumptions to the wind. Not only that, but it brought about the first musings of German nationalism manifested in a declared desire from some German states to totally unify. These calls were muted with military force and pressure from both Austria and Russia, and Prussia certainly remained unwilling to commit itself to the task of unifying all of Germany under its banner, not that all of Germany would even have allowed it at that stage. Prussia's government soldiered on throughout the 1850s, as a significant statesman was making his mark. Otto von Bismarck began his career not as a committed German nationalist, but as a Prussian patriot. He understood that if Germany was ever to be reimagined under Prussian control, its various elements would have to be reconciled and forced to cooperate, lest the danger from unification would outweigh the benefits. These benefits were too monumental to even comprehend. For millennia, France had dominated Germany, and Germans had only ever known security as part of an alliance bloc or under the protection of the Holy Roman Emperor. If Bismarck could bring about this change, then Germany would surpass France and any other European power save Russia in population, and in terms of military potential, it would surpass all. How to bring this unification about, of course, was the critical question. Prussia had been tactically using war as a means to better her position for the past decade. Under the direction of her new minister-president, Otto von Bismarck, Prussia gained both power and status in Europe at a rapid rate. But it wasn't until the war and subsequent victory over Austria that the situation in Europe was so clearly changed. Prussia had made war under Bismarck before in Europe, against Denmark in 1864, to gain the territories of Holstein and Launeburg in southern Denmark making deals with Austria to share the provinces. But Bismarck noted an opportunity for Prussia, and in 1866 he goaded Austria into attacking her. Prussia mobilised its forces, and the German states allied to it, and Austria did the same. Covering all his fronts, Bismarck also made a secret alliance with a resurgent Italy, a state also in the process of unifying herself, and this meant Austria had to unexpectedly fight on two fronts. As it happened, the Italian card was never truly needed, and Prussian success came early in the Battle of Konigratz, also known as the Battle of Sadova. The resulting peace, the 1866 Peace of Prague, changed overnight the near 400-year status quo in Europe. Austria was essentially the successor state of the Habsburg Empire, a family unit whose relatives stretched into Spain and once ruled great portions of the earth through strategic marriage and military supremacy. Following the Thirty Years' War, hint hint, episode 25, Habsburg influence was stunted somewhat, and in the early 1700s Louis XIV of France would place a Bourbon relative on the Spanish throne. But the sheer influence, legacy and legend of the Habsburg family suggested that their position was unmovable, even when Napoleon Bonaparte forcibly ended the Holy Roman Empire and forced the Habsburgs to reimagine their entire empire into the polity which historians have since called them, Austria. The 19th century saw Austria reach the apex of its influence under its own incredible chancellor, Metternich, 
but after 1866 the torch seemed to have definitively been passed. No longer would it be Austria who dictated the policy of the minor German states. Now their future would lie with Prussia. As per the terms of the peace treaty, Prussia annexed Schleswig, Holstein, Frankfurt, Hanover, Hesse-Kassel and Nassau, and Austria promised not to intervene in German affairs. To solidify Prussian hegemony, Prussia and several other North German states joined the North German Confederation in 1867, after the previous German Confederation had been dissolved. King Wilhelm I of Prussia served as its president, with Bismarck as its chancellor. Geoffrey Warrow, in his book The Franco-Prussian War, describes how the situation in Europe had changed, and what it meant for France, by far the most interested party after these wars. He wrote, France gaped in astonishment. Almost overnight, a small and rather manageable neighbour had become an industrial and military colossus. France at this stage was under the dictatorship of Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, also referred to as Napoleon III, the nephew of the Napoleon that had made France so immensely powerful before. France, it has to be said, was in virtual turmoil in the 19th century. Following the loss at Waterloo in 1815, the French monarchy was brought back, only to be forced out, only to be brought back again, only to be forced out yet again. France clamoured for a strong leader, one who would make France great again. The appointment of Napoleon's nephew in 1851 to the office of emperor sought to achieve this. The same revolutions which shook Germany to its core and awakened its nationalism also marked the emotional return to France of this Napoleon. A relative of Napoleon would surely save France from the brink of collapse. Much was talked of about the need for France to take part in wider imperial competitions, to expand into Asian markets and to challenge its traditional rivals in Britain and also in Russia. Napoleon III had grand ambitions for his homeland. The only problem was, these plans rarely seemed to go according to plan. In terms of its practical power, status and influence, France had not fared especially well in the world since Napoleon's takeover and by 1870. After being in power for nearly 20 years, Napoleon III's court had been embarrassed by a withdrawal from Mexico as it waged a curious campaign of attrition there for influence in America, while wars in Italy had seen the growth of Italian nationalism at the expense of Austria, and expansion in Asia were recently coming up against the wall of a resurgent Japan. But perhaps most infuriatingly of all for Napoleon, an up to now relatively insignificant power to the east was succeeding in all the areas that France appeared to be failing. Prussia was not expected by France to behave in the way that it did. Today, the idea of a large Germany at the centre of Europe seems normal, but in the mid-19th century, Germany was divided and relatively weak in comparison to the unified power of France, even with Prussia's recent successes. And Louis-Napoleon believed that Germany, as it was not yet known, should remain weak, so what was it doing getting so powerful? Memories of the French defeat of Austria and Prussia at the beginning of the century remained fresh and formed a great amount of the national psyche and pride on both sides of the Rhine at this point. For example, an 1860 article in the Times newspaper read, Prussia unaided would not keep the Rhine or Vistula for a month. The implication being that 
Prussia was nowhere near capable of holding back the forces of France. There was thus very little expectation that 10 years after that article was published, Prussia would be holding France to ransom. Napoleon III's response to the threat posed by this resurgent Prussia was to issue some threats and puff up his own chest. At this time, Eugene Ruhr, a French minister of state, urged Napoleon to smash Prussia and take the Rhine. A party of pro-war with Prussia now, French statesmen began to emerge. These individuals urged action before another war made Prussia not just more powerful, but uncontainable. Even a moderate politician at that time, the nevertheless pro-war Adolf Thiers, said, The way to save France is to declare war immediately. A month after the Battle of Königgratz, while Prussia was still hammering out the terms of peace to Austria, France made its first moves of action towards Prussia. Napoleon demanded Prussian support for the Borders of 1814, a move which was an example of France trying to call Prussia's bluff. The Prussian minister-president, Bismarck, refused the request by France, and for a few weeks it looked as though war may erupt. But France was not ready, even though this would likely have been the best time for action. After 1866, Napoleon claimed that he had used the Austro-Prussian War as a chance to weaken his rivals and wring concessions from the exhausted combatants. At least, that was what he told his critics. But here Napoleon allowed the moment to slip away. The reason was twofold. Not only were the French not ready, but the Prussian victory had been so crushing, so decisive, that the Prussian army... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You were not exhausted at all. On the contrary, they were emboldened, and three times the size of the active French army. Because of this turn of events, Napoleon had to backtrack, which left him deeply embarrassed. Warrow notes that Napoleon was left with nothing but the severely critical gaze of his citizenry. The French people, upon hearing of the Prussian boldness, were outraged. Cries for war grew louder from the French army, who wanted to teach Prussia a lesson. French hostility towards Prussia grew in 1867, as France moved to annex Luxembourg. Luxembourg had been under the protection of the Netherlands, 
But Louis correctly believed that the Dutch king, Frederick William III, was so deeply in debt that he would sell the duchy for the right price. But Bismarck was determined to shove his hands into every French pie, so he interfered in the process. Bismarck exaggerated the terms of the annexation in a message to the British Foreign Office, so that Britain would be disapproving or at least suspicious of French moves. To Napoleon, it would have seemed like Bismarck was out to get him. It would have also been viewed by French policymakers as a step too far by Berlin. In 1865, Napoleon had in fact signed a treaty with Prussia, wherein he promised he would not interfere with Austro-Prussian dealings, as long as Prussia prevented Austria from claiming Venetia. This was the city of Venice and its surrounding territory. Venetia was a point of contention for Napoleon, as he had encouraged Italian unification in the same way that his uncle had encouraged German unification. Napoleon III even fought wars against Austria for Italian interests in 1859. To Napoleon then, Franco-Prussian diplomacy was cool because of their European rivalry, but he believed that while this rivalry continued, there was no reason why France may not continue its intrigues elsewhere. That, after all, was the understanding reached by Prussia and France in 1865, on the eve of Prussia's war with Austria. Now that Prussia had trounced Austria, though, Bismarck seemed content to disagree with Napoleon's interpretation of the 1865 treaty. To Napoleon, Italy wasn't merely a sphere of influence. It was part of his makeup and ambition as a Bonaparte, to spread revolution and unification to neighbouring states. It was a mission he had been imbued with a decade before. On January 14, 1858, the Italian nationalist Felice Orsini attempted to assassinate Emperor Napoleon III. Obviously he failed, but he then somehow wrote to Napoleon from prison. Orsini did not plead for his life. Instead, he appealed to Napoleon III to fulfil his destiny by aiding the forces of Italian nationalism. Napoleon saw himself as in tune with the ideas of the day and became convinced that it was his destiny to aid Italy. Thus he moved to push Austria away from Italy and to aid Italian unification wherever he could. There would have been practical reasons too, of course. Napoleon would have valued a secure ally in Europe, especially one as strategically positioned as Italy. A strong Italy which owed its existence to France would be immensely useful in any future European wars, especially those against either Austria or, as it was now becoming more and more plausible, Prussia. So, with that side note out of the way, let's get back to 1867. When Bismarck eventually backed down on the Luxembourg issue, Napoleon then found that the Dutch king had changed his mind, just as the Great Fuss seemed to have blown over, as Bismarck expected would happen. With Luxembourg itself unwilling to be sold to him, Bismarck would have been giggling to himself and Napoleon would have been seething. France by now was certainly wary of just how much the situation in Europe had changed. In 1820, the population of Prussia was less than a third of that of France. In 1860, it was less than half. But after the 1866 Peace of Prague, Prussia could now call on a population of 30 million for France's 38 million. The gaps were getting smaller and Napoleon knew it, but even this didn't tell the whole story. It wasn't just population that Prussia was expanding, it was her industry too. It had exploded in the years leading up to the Austro-Prussian War of 1866 and had since then matched French industry. 
By now, though, it was becoming clear that the Prussian industries had surpassed their French equivalents. Prussia was generating three times the coal, twice the agricultural output and four times the military output of France. France was being eclipsed by a European power at a speed never before seen. The Empress, Eugénie de Montijot, wife of Napoleon, perhaps put it best when, while talking to the Prussian ambassador to France, she said, The energy and speed of your movements have made it clear to me that, with a nation like yours as a neighbour, we are in danger of finding you in Paris one day unannounced. I will go to sleep French and wake up Prussian. Challenged on numerous fronts, Napoleon began to threaten war with Prussia openly. Should Prussia extend its influence into the German states along the south, Napoleon warned he would attack. This would have surrounded France, of course, and extended the length of the border that Paris had to deal with and defend, and so further German expansion down south had to be avoided at all costs. Bismarck had domestic issues to concern himself with, though, as the events surrounding German unification were unfolding fast. In 1868, Bismarck sought the establishment of the Zoll Parliament, a customs parliament for all German states, including, critically, the previously unincorporated southern German states. Bismarck claimed that he was moving to give every German state a voice, since this was only fair, it wouldn't be right to exclude the southern German states from talks of economics just because they weren't part of Bismarck's Prussian superstate, but Napoleon saw it for what he believed it was, Prussian expansion by diplomatic and economic means. Napoleon responded to the apparent threat by extending the French army's summer manoeuvres by one week and warned that the absorption of the German states into the Prussian camp would be a casus belli. In spite of the disparities between the two countries, Napoleon was nothing if not blindly optimistic, and when addressing his generals in September 1868, he reportedly raised a toast of his finest German Rhine wine and declared, Gentlemen, I hope that you yourselves will shortly be harvesting this wine. Such talk rarely escaped Bismarck's ears. When confronted by the danger posed by France, in which a Reichstag deputy compared the French army to an avalanche that the least disturbance can plunge into a chasm, Bismarck would theatrically reply, an appeal to fear never finds an echo in German hearts. Such a response was met with jubilant applause within the Reichstag. International favour was swinging towards Bismarck and away from France. Among the European powers, France would have been kind of like the friend who just kept living in the past. But despite the rising tensions, there could be no war in 1869. Napoleon knew that France was still not ready. This suited both Prussia and France. Bismarck at this stage was still trying to gauge the stance of the larger German states, such as Bavaria and Württemberg. Bismarck wanted to be sure that if war came, all of Germany would support him. Amongst the thus far unincorporated German states, Bavaria led the opposition to a Germany united under Prussia. Bavaria's main fears were that they would lose the independence they enjoyed should Germany unify, but against this there was a strong sense of nationalism throughout Germany proper. Many Germans believed in the idea of a nation-state, a country for Germans, led by Germans and at the centre of Europe. Bismarck had initially, in his early political years at least, hesitated on the idea of unification. His fears were the same as Bavaria's to a degree, 
that Prussia would lose its independence and influence in a Germany where borders between small states were indistinguishable and the Prussian influence was overwhelmed by the size of all the other combined resources of the German states. But that was before the Austro-Prussian War. Now Bismarck believed in the cause of German unification. He said in 1869, There is but one ally of Prussia, the German people. The dilemma for the smaller German states was that they didn't want a Germany dominated by Prussia, but that at the same time Prussia was the only state large enough to ensure German unification was successful. So the project could not be undertaken without Prussia's help. 1866 had proved that Austria would not be standing by anymore. There was no doubt where France stood on the issue of German unification, however. Despite his uncle's championing of the idea, Napoleon III made every move possible to ensure that unification did not occur. But by 1869, Napoleon could not even control France any longer. Napoleon's unpopularity in France had been part of the reason why he was, by this time, so eager for war with Prussia. By the late 1860s, it seemed as though a patriotic hatred of Prussia was the one thing uniting the French people. If Napoleon could capitalise on this hatred by launching a short, sharp, successful war, all his previous slights would surely be forgotten. Or so he hoped. As the situation stood in 1869, France was on the brink of anarchy. The Republicans grew in popularity as Napoleon's regime committed blunder after blunder. The French people viewed Napoleon no longer as a saviour, but as a dictatorial tyrant whose monopoly on power had to be stopped or, at the very least, challenged. Napoleon's problems were echoed on a smaller scale in Prussia. Bismarck was now discovering why German unification had been such a difficult issue. The state rivalries of the smaller German principalities and municipalities continued to slow progress. Bismarck was constantly moving between different German parliaments to keep up with the political flow, but he could only do so much. At 54 years old, Bismarck was becoming exhausted with the logistical nightmare that was German unification. He knew deep down that the trends at that time of nationalism and imperialism on the continent meant that German states could only avoid the issue of unification for so long, and he presented his case as such. But for the sake of convenience, Bismarck was dying for a way to cut the red tape and just unite already. If Bismarck was looking for a way to cut the red tape in 1869, he knew very well that his scissors lay in war with France. The best way to unite Germany, the fastest and most effective way, was to make the other German states feel threatened. The German states would never join Prussia if Prussia acted as the aggressor. They would likely sooner side with France. However, if the states felt like their security was at stake, that their very livelihood was threatened, then perhaps they would willingly join Prussia. From this conclusion, Bismarck could see two things very clearly. He needed a war with France, and he needed France to declare that war, preferably as soon as possible. Napoleon, having learned of Bismarck's woes, declared with relish to his generals in March of 1869, France has money and soldiers. Prussia will soon have neither one nor the other. Remain calm. Everything comes to those who wait. Bismarck now had a clear mission, to goad Napoleon into declaring war on Prussia and to be ready from the moment that he did. From mid-1869, he began a diplomatic campaign against France. 
The first involved the Prussian king, Wilhelm. Bismarck's public goal was to make Wilhelm the emperor of all the Germans, but his real goal was to provoke Napoleon. In what became known as the Kaiser title, Bismarck moved to establish Wilhelm as Germany's unifying figurehead. Some states resented this move since they had their own figureheads, but others welcomed it eagerly as a sign of progress. Of course, it was these latter states that outraged Napoleon's France. These German states, upon seeing the aggression with which France opposed their movements, refused to back down from the idea and instead promoted it to an even further extent, moving closer to Prussia in the process. Then Bismarck looked towards Switzerland, more particularly the railway which was being built between the South German states and Italy. This pointed to an Italian-Prussian alliance. And if you're scratching your head wondering why the Italians would turn on their erstwhile French allies, especially Napoleon who had done so much for their sovereignty, then look no further than Venetia. Remember when I said Prussia and France made a deal in 1865 that France would not interfere in Austro-Prussian affairs so long as Prussia prevented Austrian control of Venetia? Well, in the years after the 1866 Peace of Prague, Austrian forces had slowly moved from casual manipulation of Venetian affairs to full-blown de facto control over that city-state. This move, which Napoleon publicly gave his blessing for, flew in the face of his previous Italian policy. It angered Italian nationalists who felt betrayed and moved them into the arms of the loving Bismarck, who whispered about a fully united Italy, supported by Prussia, if Italy would only join Prussia in a war against France. Whether Bismarck desired a unified Italy to join a unified Germany in the camp of nations finally back together again is debatable, but he did want to stack the deck against France and this developing alliance would certainly do that. Yet, while he acted with the Italians, Bismarck appreciated that there was potential to jeopardise his plans for unifying Germany. Allow me to explain. You see, while France fighting two countries might have sounded good on paper, Bismarck would have known that such a situation would have made the danger to the smaller German states seem less urgent. Bismarck was counting on the smaller German states' desperation and alarm upon learning of the outbreak of war, but if they knew that to the south of them another country was engaging with France, then the threats to their security would have seemed less severe, thus they may have felt less pressure to unite under Prussia. In my view then, Bismarck was using the possibility of an Italian alliance as a scare tactic, a chance to show France just how isolated it was in Europe and push it even harder to declare war before such alliances could be made. But Napoleon, to his credit, still refused to bite. Why was he holding back? Because Napoleon needed from Prussia the exact same thing that Bismarck needed from France, a declaration of war. War in defence of France was far more of a unifying cause than war for the conquest of Germany. If Prussia could be seen as the aggressor, then the French hatred of Prussia would surely unite France behind Napoleon. Now came the time when Bismarck and Napoleon had to dance around each other diplomatically, each hoping that the other would blink, or that the screaming and shouting for war would get so loud in their respective countries that they simply could not ignore it anymore. Next time, we'll see where all this dancing led.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> 